Hello, and welcome back to our last episode of 2021. And we end the year with a really awesome conversation with Ken Shelton. Um, I think anyone and everyone involved in education, uh, there's a, a bit of wisdom for everyone. We cover a lot of really cool topics in education, uh, but more specifically, we cover technology in schools and how to uh, use it in an equitable way. So, Welcome to the last episode of 2021 of the Age of Awareness podcast, and enjoy. So we had this question, we'd posed this question, who was it, Stephen? It was one of our earlier, earlier guests, but it was about sort of the need for, oh, it was Alfie Khan. Oh, maybe we had even talked about this in our, in our prep call many months ago. But as Alfie Kahn had said, he'd come out lambasting sort of standards and the whole process that has permeated across the education system around standardization. Yep. And so when I, I remember reading that article and thinking to myself, yes, I, that makes so much sense. The other question I had, though, was, and this was sort of informed by my own professional experience working inside of the federal government and understanding the bureaucratic nature of the federal government, which of course is a huge source of funding. And so there's a whole decision-making process that exists outside of the educational system and inside of the governmental system right. that needs some sort of input. Now, I'm not saying it's the right input and maybe not, but the question is, what do you do about these adjacent systems that are not the education system, but have a very, very outsized impact on the education system that demand these inputs in order to make their own decisions, which yeah. again, have massive ramifications for the education system. My obvious but not easy answer is to begin the process of interrogating who you elect to represent your voice in the first place. So, for example, if you look at the structure of the federal government, and if you were to if you were to analyze or do a tally of the education of all of our United States senators and congressional representatives, how many of them went to law school? And so there is a purpose in law school and policy. But my whole thing when it comes to your point around things like education, how many educators are on the education committees? And so you have this situation where you don't have anyone who has been deeply enough embedded in the system to see it for what it is and to be able to add dialogue within the context of policy, either policy affirmation or policy development that say, OK, I see why you want to do this, but here's what the consequences are. Here's what's really happening to be able to add to that conversation. It's no different than if you think about it from this standpoint. The Defense Department, you have generals, you have those that have served in the military that are a part of the committees from the Defense Department that inform some of the, the, the committees in the House and in the Senate. But you don't have that with education. You don't have that with, uh, you know, scientists and engineers. You don't have that as far as like things like um, climate, uh, the interior, 
really it's 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 all centered around well you got to have a law degree because laws are made and so therefore you need to have someone who has a law degree to be able to make the laws that impact all these other uh you know elements of of government and to me the first step the hard step is to look at who are you electing and then also who are they including in the context of those committee meetings if you have like i'll give you all an example so Several friends of mine are on a task force. I was actually on a task force for the previous California state superintendent, which was the educational technology task force. And the whole idea was to, that, that the superintendent wanted to uh, literally author policy that had a definitive blueprint for the implementation and expansion of technology within education here in the state of California. And so on this task force, I believe there was 25 of us. You had researchers, you had uh, college professors that worked in graduate schools of education, you had district leadership, you had site leadership, you had classroom educators, you had a wide swath of representations across the entire educational uh, industry spectrum. And all of us were parts of subcommittees. So for example, I was in a subcommittee on district supports and professional growth. So we met, we talked about all the ways in which this could happen and were the ways in which some of the resources within the State Department of Ed and really beyond the State Department of Ed could be allocated to uh, essentially support the acquisition, implementation and growth on the use of educational technology. And in the process of this task force, we met with like the higher ed folks. Because the whole point is, if you've got school districts that are doing this, then what's going on with the teachers that are in the prep programs? as far as their use of technology, so they're better prepared when they get to the school district that is looking at growing their use. So you see how we hit on literally all those areas. And one of the things that we didn't do that I really wanted to happen, but unfortunately the state superintendent, um, he couldn't do it because it had to go through one of the assembly members in the education committee, is I wanted them to add a policy to, I know a lot of states, in fact, most states have. So here we have this thing called the California Standards for the Teaching Profession. Those are the standards of which all graduate school programs have to, their whole program has to be aligned with those standards. So you know exactly what you are getting when you go through that program on a foundational level. Of course, then you branch out into multi-subject, single subject, what single subject, and all those other things. But there is that, that, that level setting of the foundation. I wanted technology to be in that because once you put it in that, you know for sure it's going to be implemented across the board. But to your point that you're bringing up, you don't see that enough at local, state, and at the federal level to say, we need to do this and we need to get in the right stakeholders who will help us be more informed before we make decisions that become policy. So you're raising two things. One, and that I'm, that I'm hoping we can dive deeper into the first is what we we were what we're really excited to talk about today which is this whole notion of tequity the second though and it's kind of like a lens that i think you're you're advocating for across many of your conversations but is the system's view it's yes it's the individual but it's also let's zoom out and take a look at the system uh, and so when you talk about you know having these these interventions in the educational system from, or from, uh, uh, you know, sort of like a resourcing and budgeting perspective, it's, are you accounting for not just the acute instance of what you're trying to, you know, mitigate against or, or address, but also the feeder things that 
provide inputs, whether it's the training programs or the teachers or something else. So I, I, I think this is, this is going to come together very nicely. Uh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Um, so let's start with Techwity. You know, you just published an article recently about it. So can you tell us a little bit about what is Techwity in the first place? The way I oversimplify Techwity is two parts. So one is the intersectionality between technology and equity. So technology, I, I, I define that as any sort of digitized uh, resource that is available in schools. Literally that's it. The equity piece is access and opportunity. So how are we providing access and opportunity with our digital resources? Everything from calculators to iPads to laptops, more specifically Chromebooks, or MacBooks, whatever device of choice is. Okay, so now when you combine those two, what does that look like in a learning environment of which you have a ubiquitous use of educational technology that is aligned with both a culturally responsive and culturally relevant learning experience that provides uh, learners empowerment and agency to develop their essential skills and realize their full potential if you're taking K through 12 by the time they turn 18. What you're describing makes me think this isn't an educational example, but I think it points to the gap in the system that you're getting at. A friend of mine lost her phone the other day and had to navigate the world without a smartphone and was having all sorts of struggles. You know, she talked about she couldn't even pay for parking right. because everything is, you know, app enabled now. And so I, I, again, I know that's not an education example, but I think what it's pointing to is how pervasive certain certain technologies have become inside our society. And then you're looking very specifically inside the realm of education. What are the ramifications of this spread of technology? And furthermore, how does it show up with the lens of equity? So what... Could you could you talk a little bit about maybe, you know, I gave a an example that's outside education. Could you share a few examples or stories that might paint the picture of what Techwity is and how it's showing up in the classroom? So the first thing, again, learner empowerment and learner agency, and I'm specifically using those phrases, not student voice and choice. Student voice and choice still centers the opportunity as well as the access on the teacher, whereas Learner empowerment and learner agency is when you have the right degree of access to technology, you can begin to develop your own ways of representing your knowledge and understanding within the context of what your learning environment is. So one of the personal examples I always share is the fact that what resources are being provided to students that aren't within the context of a colonized curriculum that provide that that essentially democratize access to information and voice. So, for example, when I was teaching in the classroom, one of the things that I wanted to make sure that all of my learners were able to do is identify representations that mirrored themselves, and I'm using mirror as a specific term here, that they can look to for inspiration, for commonality, for anything that was aligned with their cultural identity. You will not find that in any colonized curriculum. I know it from my own experience, 
you know, if you think in terms of my experiences in especially middle school and high school, the only representations uh, for me being a black male educator, the only, or in this case, a black male student, the only representations I was exposed to was what the teachers deemed acceptable during the month of February, and that's it. And that was usually relegated to a couple of pages in the textbook, and that's it. And so that's one example of one, what information and what narratives and what voice does technology provide us access to? And then of course, how are you using it? That's the other thing. And, and that's where you get into the tech repeat. I see a lot of high volume of tech, but for low order thinking, digitization of lessons, automation as far as worksheets. Well, just do this one and then this one and then this one and then this one and it'll automatically grade for me. That's not, that's not, that's just, that's taking a bad learning dynamic and now digitizing a bad learning dynamic. And so to me, the equity piece is not only just that, but it's also things like one of the things I really prided myself on with my learners was I would literally say, I need you to identify what mechanisms work best for you to represent your knowledge and understanding, i.e. to show proficiency within the deliverables that we have for X project. And in some cases, it was video. Some cases, it was writing. Some cases, it was a slide deck. See, for me, how you do that is less relevant than your representation of it. And, and for me, as the educator in the room, it was, I want to be the catalyst for you to identify, here's what works best for me within the context of this. And that's why I stress the fact that, you know, you had different proficiency markers to be able to do that. So for example, if the students were doing, like I had the student, one of my favorite projects I'd have students do is they would produce instructional videos. So there were, what was proficiency with that? Well, one, 90 seconds, no more. Ideally, you create all of the resources and all the materials you use. So in other words, you're not going and finding somebody else's music and then having to navigate copyright. I always, always tell my students, which is what I would do. You wanna know the best way to avoid any copyright issues? create the content yourself. We have GarageBand, we had SoundCloud, we have all these things, create it yourself, okay? Now, for the measures were 90 seconds, you have a clear objective, you have a clear, clearly laid out lesson, and you have a clear type of assessment that your audience, in this case, the audience is your primary is your peers, that they can do to measure. Did I get what I just viewed? as a way of enhancing my learning, and it might also be helpful. That was it. Now, how you get to that point, my job is to provide you the research and support to essentially have that finished product. When you do that, you've demonstrated proficiency. And I'm using proficiency specifically because I notice a lot of educators like to use the word mastery. Let me tell you how I was as a student every time I heard the word mastery. Oh, I've shown mastery? That means I don't need to learn anymore. And so there were some students that would produce videos where they would literally talk to the camera. There were others where they would do slides and they would do a voiceover. And there were some where they would do a video. They would have a transcript of the video. And then they might produce an ancillary PDF resource for you to use at the end. In the end, I'm not going to value one over the other. My whole thing is these are the standards that well, these are the proficiency standards that you want to meet by the time you finish your instructional video. And the thing I encourage educators to do now is borrow from what a lot of the students are doing today, and that is borrow the characteristics of TikTok. Think about TikTok. Easy to make, easily customizable, customizable, can get very complex, very quick, 
But I've seen videos where people are literally explaining really complex thing in 60 seconds or less. Think about how the skills required to do that, the communication skills, the create the 4C, except for collaboration. And although some of them I see have collaborated, and this is what I would curse you to, but think about the skills that are required to produce a well thought out, well-designed 60 second TikTok video of which you are teaching somebody something, whether it be simplistic or complex. Take all of those characteristics, and now how do you apply that within the context of your learning environment? And the only, only way you assess it is based on, does it deliver the lesson or the message in as clear, a concise a capacity as possible for your intended audience? So you can't do that in a multiple choice test. And by the way, I would argue, which one is more empowering for learners? An artifact they produce like that or taking a multiple choice test? So that's an example of, of, of Tequity in action where you look at, you know, and again, counting culturally responsive and even culturally relevant. What are the platforms and conditions that many of our learners are engaged in in digital environment now? What are the characteristics of it? Now, how might I use those in the context of my content area? And then ensure that the students have the access to the digital resource and other resources necessary to be able to produce in this case, produce an artifact or produce something that is aligned with that. Yeah, so it's it's learning on the learner's terms in a way. Correct. Uh, is what I'm hearing you say. I'm wondering about accessibility to technology, which I'm imagining is also a big factor of techquity. What can you say about that? What what is there to say about accessibility? Uh, let's start off with the fact that the internet and, and more specifically broadband should be universal, period. I should not be able to go to places in the United States where I don't have broadband access, period. And I have uh, worked with various groups and I know there's a lot of groups and a friend of mine knows the acting chairwoman of the FCC who's been a staunch advocate. Broadband access, first of all, the internet should be designated as a utility, and I believe it is in, in fact, I know for a fact, portions of it are in the infrastructure bill that our current president is trying to get passed through Congress, that there will be a sizable investment on our internet infrastructure that is aligned with making it a utility so that broadband access is universal. That's the first thing right there. You can get all the devices you want. They mean nothing if you don't have the right access in the first place. So to me, I should not be able, a zip code should not be determinant of whether or not I have broadband access, okay? And that's how I use this term. I didn't come up with it, but I use this term called digital redlining because you can go to, what a surprise, certain areas, especially urban areas where they are economically under-resourced and you will not see broadband access ubiquitous. Uh, you can go to many rural areas where you will not see broadband access ubiquitous. So we got it. We got to have that level setted foundation of broadband access is universal no matter where you go. Zip code is not determining that. Then it goes into the whole idea around the acquisition of devices. I cringe every time I either hear from or work with a district where they say, well, we're an Apple district or we're a Google district or we're a Microsoft district. My follow up question is always, how do you know the devices that you use are the best for the needs of all of your uh, educators and all of your learners? How do you know? You shouldn't be only Apple, only Google, only Microsoft. It should be tech. 
And then now what devices are necessary to meet the needs of all the educators and all the learners. It might be that, that you could say, well, most of them have identified an iPad, for example, as the best device. Great. But that means that you've done your information acquisition, you've done an audit, you've done an assessment, you've done all these things before you've spent the money. Uh, and, and, and so for me, usually when I get asked a question, which is not that much recently, but definitely five, between five and 10 years ago, what's the best device for a district to use to go one-to-one? I'm like, whatever device you can use that puts, uh, whatever device you can acquire that puts a device in the hands of every single learner. And then now maybe you get a few add-ons. That's why with some districts, I would say like, I would go one-to-one with Chromebooks and then whatever money you have left, I will get a bunch of iPads because there's some things you can do with an iPad that you cannot do with a Chromebook and vice versa. And ultimately the device should be a part of the learning experience. So therefore, what is the experience we want the learner to have? And what are the devices and resources necessary to be aligned with that experience? That's the way the decision should be made, not, well, what can we afford or who's done the best sales job and what we should acquire? I was in LA Unified when the whole iPad uh, debacle occurred. And my whole thing with that was you never bothered to look at what devices are, are needed across all district, or excuse me, all the schools within a district and recognize some schools, the iPads are not the best device. Some they might be. But until you operate from uh, a true needs assessment, as well as economic access perspective, you're, you're, you're going to be buying things that, that are just going to collect us. They're not going to be used in a way that they should be. And any device that's acquired and any expectation you have should automatically come with some sort of professional growth plan that is that has um, you know objectives for one year, three years, and five years. You mentioned the the LA iPad debacle. Just I'm imagining many listeners probably aren't familiar with that. Could you give a line or two just to to flesh that out a little bit? Yeah. So basically, what happened? I can't remember the years, but I was in a, I was a teacher in LA Unified and. The superintendent at the time was looking at going one-to-one across the whole district. And so, of course, many tech companies were salivating at that because it's the second largest district in the country. And they knew, okay, if they're going to put, if they're going to go one-to-one, that means they want to put a device in the hands of roughly a million students. And so there was this whole thing. I believe they did an RFP. And there was this whole thing around ours is the best, ours is the best, ours is the best. And there was never any assessment on, well, we're not going to go based on who tells us the best devices. We're going to go based on the needs of each of the schools within the district. And so ultimately, Apple won that RFP. And of course, you find out later that there was some shady backroom dealing going on between that superintendent at the time and Apple. And so they bought a bunch of iPads. They formed a uh, uh, an internal task force slash rollout team because I know some folks that were on that team that were going to make sure that the devices got out into the schools and that they were going to go provide the PD support, the professional growth support on the use of those devices. Well, in the end, by the time they got all the devices, the early early devices they got were already uh, obsolete. Uh, there wasn't uh, there wasn't a plan for professional growth. And so you had, in some cases, some of the test schools where the students were bypassing some of the security measures that were set up. Uh, the teachers were either digitizing lessons or like, I'm not trying to deal with a device that I don't know how to troubleshoot or uh, or fix if there is a problem. And so then they stopped the rollout. And you ended up with a bunch of devices that were still sitting in boxes in a warehouse that never made it into the hands of the educators or the student. And it became this massive debacle because they spent a lot of money on that. 
and it still didn't accomplish what the original goal was. So my whole thing with that was the plan was doomed from the get-go because you didn't do a needs assessment and didn't say, we need to have something that creates universal access and then now what devices work best based on the needs of the schools. And we will then put out RFPs that we can say, okay, we've got X number of schools that need uh, you know, laptops, MacBook Pros, if you will. We got X number of schools that need iPads. We got X number of schools that need Chromebook. They didn't do any of those sorts of things. They were trying to do it all, all one size fits all with iPad, and it just it 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 didn't work. And so all that money that was spent that probably could have been better spent on other things like like for example, why is it at my last school that I depend upon where I was in a building determine whether or not I had a very strong Wi-Fi signal? You see, there's even inequity within one building. <laughs> That school was built during the New Deal. So you had these really thick uh, concrete walls that a Wi-Fi signal could not go through. And so the school didn't have enough money to put access points in strategic locations to where no matter what classroom you're in, you always had a strong signal. So some classrooms did not have a strong signal. So you even had digital inequity at the same school on the same campus within the same building. Hmm. But then they wanted to talk about the acquisition of all these devices. You know, I got two thoughts coming to mind. One is I had never even really considered, I'm reflecting back on my own time now in the classroom, and there were inequities among the spaces in the mm-hmm. building. I, and I, that, I'm even thinking about when it just comes to heating and air yep. and access to sunlight. And what kind of experiences that those have even beyond technology or even perhaps more basic than technology. That's a head turner. Um, But so the other thing I was thinking about, though, as you were talking is zooming way out uh, or way or way up, I should say, to that satellite level and looking and, and again, putting my own educational experience in, into the conversation and thinking about when I went to school, technology was rolled around on carts. The, the, the idea that everybody would have their own laptop or iPad was many years off into the future. And so in some ways, the system had to go from zero to one. And it was kind of, you know, to get to that one-to-one, like, okay, we need to go from a system that nobody has technology and everything's chalkboard or, you know, the big innovation was whiteboards, you know, it's like we're going from chalk to markers, but now we're going to go from analog to digital. And so it feels like, or it's, or I'm, what I'm wondering is, okay, there was a big zero to one jump that has been completed essentially over the last 15 years or 20 years, let's say. And then now what I'm, what I'm wondering if you're pointing at is like, great, we've all made the jump. There's sort of a baseline expectation, and this could be too far of a stretch, I'm realizing, of like, you're going to have access to a piece of technology in, the, in, you know, in your classroom. Now, the question is, how do you get from one to N and really elevate or, or advance along that maturity curve of using technology in the classroom? Well, that's why for me, like you just mentioned, you know, when you go to the 30,000 foot or the satellite level, my first question is always what policies exist within the district or within the state DOE that supports that growth? 
what resources are allocated to operationalize the expectations of that growth? How are the educators, site administrators, district leaders being supported in operationalizing that growth? Uh, and then ultimately, what's going on in the classrooms where we can see a clear difference between pre-technology access and opportunity, post-technology access and opportunity. And that's why I always say, if you've got just simply a digitization of lesson, then all you've done is a remix of the same flawed system. You know, my whole thing with technology is, and I see this a lot with a lot of trainers and a lot of speakers and a lot of people that they do these minor, they, they talk about these minor tweaks to an existing system when they never, they either don't understand how the status quo is weaponized and victimizes, especially learners that are under in under-resourced communities or that are of a historically marginalized and oppressed uh, background. And so when you have all of these, uh, you know, these base learning, and I say BLs because I've been through PBL, CBL, UDL, all, all of these things. All of those are remixes of a colonized curriculum. And so for me, it's that technology has to provide a completely different learner experience that dismantles anything that marginalizes, anything that oppresses, and anything that provides a, what I always say is, the, the, the thing I always encourage educators to do is to ask yourself the question. When I'm hearing a speaker talk about, like, for example, I'll use an example and not to pick on this one, but it's one that I do. I do pick on because I hear it used a lot. Universal design for learning. What good? First of all, you got to understand the history behind UDL, which is started in the architecture industry. And it became a part of education after No Child Left Behind, because No Child Left Behind said, you have to do all the following things. And then it was like, well, what about diverse learning? Oh, IEPs, now use the universal. And then some folks are like, well, if you can do it for there, then they try to extrapolate it to the whole industry. And my whole thing is this, in theory, I love it. In practicality, how... How is it beneficial to me as a learner if you are universally designing for me to learn within a colonized curriculum in the first place? So you see, if the curriculum is already marginalizing, oppressing, or dismissing who I am as an individual, doesn't support development of my own cultural identity, doesn't support me when it comes to learner empowerment, then all you're doing is a remix of something that was already damaging and problematic before you added this fancy label to it. And it's not just UDL, it's all the other things that I see where, again, the big thing I ask educators is, if it places a disproportionate degree of responsibility on the individual with no interrogation of the system and no interrogation of policy, then I'm going to question it. And so in the context of this, like what you're saying, it's like, okay, yeah, you want to do all this with tech, but policies are in place that ensure access to resources, and how is it providing a different learner experience. If I still have to learn uh, in English class, I still have to read the classics. And now you're using technology to assess my, uh, my interpretation, knowledge, understanding of the classics. How is that helping me? Oh yeah, you're using tech, great. All you're doing is adding, what I always say is you're adding fancy seasoning to a bad dish. In my line of work in consulting, we say technology makes bad processes worse faster. Correct. Yeah. Well, 
let's 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 be real. What are algorithms? I mean, all this technology, people coding, and our algorithms are just you know to borrow from Kathy and Neil, there are opinions embedded in code, and they just automate the status quo. That's it. Mm-hmm. And I always share with educators, you know, you get these things. What do you have to do to maintain the status quo? Nothing. Nothing. I like so that. It's, so it's I'm going to take that question with me. <laughs> yeah. So it's a, it's it. But the point that I'm sharing is that it is you. We have to examine systems. See, people make up systems. So when you think in terms of the system, it's it's uh, to borrow from Dr. Alan Johnson. It's the forest and the trees. I want to look at the whole system and then I will look at the individuals who are either propagating or perpetuating what I always say I shared in my talks is examining habits of mind and cultural norm. The individuals are the cultural norms and create the habits of mind, but the, they, are, they are a byproduct of the system that they're operating within. The, 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 the origin of the system establishes the, the norms and behaviors of the system, which then perpetuate the existence of the system. So let me, so let me ask you this then, and I want to go at it from two levels because I I'm hearing what you're saying. So we have a lot of teachers who listen to this podcast, and so there is a way in which they have to operate at the individual level. They may not have the levers available to them to influence the system. So I want to ask. Before I want to ask, what can an individual teacher do? And then after that, I want to talk about what can a superintendent do or right. somebody else who plays at the system level. So, so from the individual perspective, the individual teacher, what what can they do? What what's available to them? So the first thing for individual teachers, which I can even share things that that I did when I was in the classroom is I recognize that teachers have to operate within the guardrails that are dictated for them to a large extent. So that's why, that's precisely why my, my default, I, I rarely ever blame an educator, period. Because I know that there are guardrails and there are policy that dictates what you can and cannot do. And I also do not encourage educators to go against the grain or uh, you hear a lot of, of speakers say, well, be the disruptor, be the disruptor. Listen, the advice I always give teachers be careful about taking advice from someone who doesn't have to bear the consequences of the results of their advice. Okay. It's easy for uh, uh, what I describe many of them as charlatans. It's easy for a charlatan to say, Oh, you need to be the disruptor. You need to be the troublemaker. They don't know what, 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 what the culture or the conditions you operate within, and they don't have to bear the consequences. So for me, it's analyzing what are some of my problems of practice, i.e. how is a cultural norm that I as an individual can shift within those guardrails that I do. So I'll give you all an example. You all were uh, gave me the opportunity to not only publish, but share within your community my blog posting uh, that I did with my friend Nadia, my close friend Nadia on grading. Okay. I knew I have to assign a letter grade. That's the system. This is a policy of telling me you have to do a letter grade for your student. Okay. Now, with that being said, what can I do that not only serves as a type of disruption, but I always say disruption doesn't go far enough. Because think about it. If a student is disruptive, what do you do? You, you, you engage in actions to be able to say you disrupted something and I'm going to do whatever's necessary to get it back to the way it was before that disruption. You see, it's temporary. This is why I always tell educators, don't listen to anyone who says be a disruptor because all they're talking about is temporary. What I did was I dismantled 
the antiquated policy that were established around grading by doing even something simple as this. I told all of my learners, I have to give you a letter to represent your learning. But what I don't have to do is follow that zero to 100 scale. And what I don't have to do is do an average. What I'm going to do is we are going to, I'm going to have proficiency uh, measures, minimum standards or minimum levels that you have to demonstrate. And if you don't demonstrate those, we're going to engage in three parts, which is in the posting I did. Reflection, what did you do? What resources are necessary to meet the standard? Revisions based on those, what, out, what resources can I provide or do you need to do that? Revision, and then now resubmission. Because my goal was, I don't want a single student to experience failure. There's growth. And that's why I said reflection, revision, resubmission. So you see, that's me saying, I have these guardrails I have to operate within, which is just great. But I can do things differently to that end. And one of the other things I used to do with my students that uh, wasn't until later in my career, where I was like, you're going to have to negotiate for your grade. And he's like, what do you mean by negotiate? We're going to talk. <laughs> We're going to look at what you've done. You have a digital portfolio. You're going to track all of your growth over the course of the grading period, the marking period, and we're going to have a conversation. Now, what my students started to realize towards the end of the school year was that negotiating was not me arguing against you. It was me encouraging you to identify your own growth, your own assessment of your learning, and what does a letter look like that's associated with that? And yes, I'm going to advocate for you, but I want you to be able to articulate your growth based on this digital portfolio that you've put together. Here's where I was, here's where I am. And then of course my question, okay, so what does that look like in a letter? And you would get to, well, it might be a C. Really? How many proficiency standards did you meet? All of them. How much growth did you experience from where we started and where we are now? Quite a bit. That's a C? Well, you know, and of course the student, again, it's the whole idea around self-advocacy. So my point in sharing even that story for your audience is, I still had to operate within the guardrails of you have to do a letter. Okay, no problem. Well, here's how I'm going to re-examine the way this system operates. I'm going to reject that zero to 100 scale. I'm going to reject doing this whole averaging thing. I'm going to reject the game of you turn in the assignment, and boom, this is your grade and too bad. And now we move on. And that's some of the things that you have to do. Uh, and I know I'm not going to say that it's easy, but where there's a will, there's a way. And for me, it was recognition of the fact that, that there, are, there are antiquated norms within education as a system that victimize, traumatize, marginalize, oppress, and in some cases are, are abusive. And I'm just not going to do those things. And so, and it took me several years, by the way, I, I need, I need to be clear for your audience. I did not do it that way. When I started, it became this whole idea around, you know, and the funny thing is I used to teach this for the social commentary was the matrix. I took the red pill probably about my fourth or fifth year in the classroom of an 18 year career. And that's when I'm like, this stuff is not good. These things don't, holy cow. I was a victim of some of these things. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, perpetuate this for uh, my students, especially because I see it for what it is now. We're going to do things differently. Even discipline policy, I mean, all of that. So to answer your question in a very roundabout way, it's 
analyzing what are my habits of mind, cultural norms? Am I engaging in policies and pedagogies that were that I experienced? How do I feel about them in regards to my own empowerment? What are the conditions that I had to endure and survive that when I become aware of those, I can assure that, that, that the learners I'm responsible for do not have to go through that? What are the ways in which if I have the access, I can use technology to help uh, to support learner empowerment, which means exploring ways in which I learn best and I can best represent my knowledge and understanding of what I'm learning. What are the things that are aligned with different forms of assessment that exist that I can say, okay, a multiple choice test, uh, in many cases, especially if they're aligned with what the curriculum provides, those are culturally biased. Yes, I'm saying that. Uh, because all you got to do is, all educators got to do is ask themselves, what is the primary demographic of those test writers? What is the experiences they've had? And are they aligned with the experiences that, in my case, most of my students were black and brown? I know darn well, most of those test writers do not look like the students that I had. So the last thing I'm going to do is use any type of canned assessment that's aligned with that. That makes me think of, we were introduced in a recent conversation with one of our previous guests to this notion of entrenched development. And it's the origin of something is, or let's say the trajectory of something is so inherently baked into the origin. And the example they use is a, a human embryo, you know, fertilized fertilized egg can only ever be a human. It's not going to be a bat. It's not going to be a giraffe. It's not going to be a bush or a plant. It's only ever going to be a human. So there are, there are things that are just so baked into the origin of something that you can't escape it. And you're, you're pointing to hey, the origin of these things. There are certain things about them that are just baked and you can't, you can't get beyond them unless you go back to the origin. There is a reason why and this existed even back when I was in school. There's a reason why the school to prison pipeline still exists. To the point you just made, there's a reason why. There's a reason why, uh, which I'm including some of the research to support this in my book. There's a reason why I can predict with a high degree of, of accuracy, a child in preschool that is likely to end up dropping out or incarcerated by the time they get to, if they even finish high school. It's to the point you just shared. What's going on in the system? What is entrenched that leads to that predict the predictability of that outcome? Why is it that we still see many schools and even districts that are in, that, are, that based on geographical location are under-resourced? And my whole thing with the under-resourced schools is, if you look at the fire and the police personnel within those same neighborhoods, they have all the resources they need to perform the essential functions of their jobs. But yet, for some reason, schools don't. And I heard people, well, they, why don't they just do fundraise? Miss me with that. Wait, you're going to do a fund? You're going to do a fundraiser for financial resources in a financially under-resourced community in the first place. How's that work? <laughs> Can't get blood out of a turnip. So let's talk at the system level then for the superintendents and, and the other players at that level. What are they doing or what, what can they do to address it? So a lot of the superintendents that are good friends of mine, uh, there's a number of things that I've seen occur that I would identify as bold, courageous, and visionary leadership. The first thing goes to the conversation we're having is lobbying the school board to put policy 
You see, for example, uh, one of the districts I work with, they put into policy diversity, equity, and inclusion that I'm working with them on. The board adopted a policy, which means it's in writing. Now all of us are held accountable to what we put in writing. And we need to see this come to fruition. And we need to follow the objective, the objectives that we have set based on the timeline we have set. So, so, that, so that's one. The second thing is for a superintendent to examine, examine the systems and the operate the policies that are in place right now around things like, I'll give you all a prime example. I worked with the school district on this, and I was so I was so proud of the superintendent and a majority of the board that recognized that it was problematic. The policy that they had in place that, that was set for students to be identified as highly gifted. So there was only three ways a student could be identified as highly gifted. Number one, parental advocacy. Number two, teacher advocacy. And number three, standardized test performance. And I said, okay, let's start off with parental advocacy because part of it was looking at the data. In fact, let me qualify this. Part of it was looking at the data and I always say big data is always true in general, but never in particular. My, and a close friend of mine always asks the question, what are the stories behind the data? So to paint the picture for, for, for you two and for your audience, the students, the demographics of the students that were identified as highly gifted was not consistent with the proportional representation within the district. And so that's why I said, well, the first question is, how are you getting in there? And so, of course, what happens? Parental advocacy was number one. So you had the students where they had financial fidelity of which a parent either had the time the awareness or the ability to go to campus and advocate for their child. The families where you had two parents that were working at least one job, and in some cases, multiple jobs, did not have the ability to go do that. Okay, so see, that's number one. The second one was teacher advocacy. And I said, how are you accounting for the teacher biases that exist where they may not see excellence or gifts in the students that don't fit the historical demographics that have identified as gifted. Now let's go to the standardized exam. Have you accounted for the fact that the exams are highly likely to be culturally biased? And so when we started to crunch these numbers and analyze, it was like, okay, one, we now need to account for these things. And now how do you create a policy that dismantles all of the above, not disrupt, dismantle. And ultimately the big thing was the following, recognizing that all students have various gifts. And in some cases, one of those three things acknowledges, affirms and centers those gifts at the expense of others. And so I said, what I would do is I would completely dismantle that and not do any highly gifted labels at all. And I would encourage all students to at a minimum, take a course, at least one course that you would identify as highly ac academically rigorous and then provide the resources and support for success in that. And I said, because I can tell you right now, you have students that aren't identified as highly gifted, but they have gifts and it might be in certain content areas as well. 
It may not be across the board, but ultimately, what kind of a culture are you creating when the first step is we want to affirm that all of our learners have gifts and we're going to create the conditions to be able to identify what those gifts are. In some cases, it might just be a student saying, math is my favorite subject. Well, guess what? We want to put you in a more rigorous academic classroom within the math department. And you see, now you start to you you start to eliminate the bias. You start to eliminate classism. You start to eliminate uh, disproportionate access to resources. You start doing all those things. And and I've worked with many superintendents where they've done this. And of course, you you can probably guess who the largest opponents to that program to doing that work. Those are the parents, the parents of the highly gifted, because they want their child to stand out. And my whole thing is. I'm, I'm down with you wanting your child to stand out, but not at the expense of all the other kids in the district. Your child's going to stand out in some way, shape, or form. We all have different gifts. Listen, all of your listeners, if they were to think about what am I really good at and what what am I what 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 do I need to experience degrees of growth in, or what it's just I'm just not good at. What you're really good at, I would want every school to support every child identifying that as early as kindergarten and no later than the fifth grade. So that as you work your way through your academic programs, you can say, okay, you know what? I know I have this, but this is what I'm really good at. This is my passion area. And do that for all learners, not just those that have parental advocates, teacher advocates, or happen to do well on some standardized exam. In fact, I would I, I, I share with I eliminate any standardized exam that 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 is used to identify a highly gifted child. It just means they're good at taking a test. Let me ask one more before I I toss it over to you. And then I know we've got to wrap up soon after. Ken, in thinking about sort of the equity and, and you know, you've outlined who struggles and why they struggle and, and talk, you've talked about the use of technology. Could you, could you share any additional resources for someone who wants to go deeper into equity? You know, for example, you had mentioned the SAMR model. The, um, you know, could you talk a little bit about that or anything else that somebody who's curious about this might go look to learn more about it. Uh, I, I would say the first thing, hopefully you all will include the ASCD article in the show notes. Um, it, it, it's um, it's short, but at least it could be a provocative catalyst for thought. The SAMR model, look, there's no one resource. I always, I always, listen, this is what I always share with educators. The best resource is you. And now what, Learning opportunities do you seek out? How are you in examining and assessing who you're learning with and who you're learning from? And so when you have these different frameworks and models and things like that, they all serve a purpose, but there's not one that is like the magic bullet, if you will, or the magic magic beans. So the SAMR model, for example, for those that aren't familiar, SAMR is an acronym for Substitution, Augmentation, Modification, and Redefinition. It was developed by uh, Dr. Ruben Puentadora. It's a very simplistic model of looking at technology integration. What it doesn't account for is cultural proficiency within the learning environment. It also doesn't account for uh, teaching within a colonized curriculum. And so that's why it is a good resource, but it shouldn't be the only resource. And so for me with with educators, when you're thinking in terms of resources, I would look at it as the as the buffet approach. 
identify what areas can help support my growth and then assess them and say, well, because not all of them are going to work. I would be irresponsible of me to say, do this, 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 and this. Because for your audience, I'm not in the environment they're in. I don't work in the school district they're in. So for me, it's like, one, I, I try to maintain a high degree of humility to recognize that, that there's always room for growth for me as well, which is why I'm always reading, I'm always listening, and I'm constantly in learning mode. And that's the way it took me years in the classroom to start develop that. But I think I was a better version of myself year after year as a result of that. So when it comes to this, for, for educators, I would encourage educators to really start to examine what are the experiences I want my learners to have and how might technology serve as a necessary role in that experience? And now what are the resources I can um, cite, uh, engage in learning with, and, and as well as maybe utilize that can help me reach that point? And then now what are the assessment pieces so I can say, well, did this work for me? Did it work for my learner? Maybe some things did. So the SAMRA model, again, it's, an, it's, a, it's a very simplistic way of looking at it but it shouldn't be the only way of looking at it. What does redefinition look like? Well, I can tell you one, it's not the digitization of lesson and it's not the digitization of worksheet. It is using technology in ways that you, if you didn't have access to the technology, you couldn't do it. And that's where I get into the doc democratization of information and the democratization of representation of voice. I'll give you, because I know for times, I'll give you a very, very quick example. If you're an educator and you want students to engage in what we identify as quote unquote class participation, how might technology serve as a necessary and critical role for all the students that self-identify as an introvert in the classroom? How might it be a way to say, okay, I know that some of my students might be reticent to raise their hand, but it doesn't mean that they don't have something of value to offer to the learning environment. So how might I use technology to ensure access of their voice within a context of the learning environment? See, that's one example. That's not only a redefinition, but also it's culturally affirming as long as you don't place a hierarchy on the value of what's contributed in the first place. And I used to always say to my students, in fact, here's one I'll share that is a culturally responsive condition I share uh, in one of my talks for, the, for, uh, for your listeners. I always say, how does the learning and the technology accelerate both individual learning and then their contribution to accelerate group learning? And the question I used to always ask my students at the beginning of the school year, how might your grade change if you were evaluated and assessed on how well you help others in class? And how might we affirm all of the gifts that all of us bring to the learning environment? Everyone has a unique gift. And, I, and my job is to support you in identifying it. Now, how might you use it for not only just your learning as an individual, but elevate group learning? Because a rising tide lifts all boats. And this goes to my whole thing with educators. Again, I'm including this in the book. Your learning environments are only going to be one of two things, cooperative or competitive. And all of us have operated within a competitive learning environment, which perpetuates the myth of meritocracy, which perpetuates capitalism. It's why you look at the disproportionate access to resource. You make it cooperative. Now we support each other. There are plenty of things that are competitive. I played sports all my life. I played sports in college. That was competition. Learning should not be competitive. Learning should be cooperative and supportive, always. Steven, you want to close this out with a, a yeah. final question or two? Yeah, I just got done taking a few pages of notes that I'm going to try to incorporate <laughs> into my classroom. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm see what I can do. See what I can do tomorrow morning, right? See what changes I can make tomorrow morning in the classroom. So I, I'm entering my eighth year of teaching, and I had 
so many ideas when I entered the teaching world, all these ideas and initiatives and uh, all, all, all these initial goals um, that I, some I still have, some I, they faded years ago. But I, I'm wondering about, you know, your initial vision and what you were working with when you first started. And, you know, to reflect on that, what has become a part of your reality still today, um, what's kind of got put on the back burners, and then maybe in terms of Tequity, you know, what's what's come up to be something bigger than you never expected? Ooh. <laughs> I, I, I would say this. So the first thing is is for your audience to catch the fact that you have been listening and I've identified something that you might be able to utilize tomorrow. And I think it's important for us to recognize what are some of the small shifts that I can do in their immediacy. And then again, what learning and growth can I engage in over the course of the next month, semester, year? And one of the things I used to include in one of my early talks, especially with what I observed with my colleagues at many of the schools that I worked at, oh, I'm a 25-year veteran. And I, I would, look, I'm not telling everyone to say this, but this is what might be my usual response. No, you're a one-year veteran 25 times because you're doing the exact same things now that you were doing in year one. And I saw it over and over and over again. And I think when it comes to the technology, uh, especially in this context, it really boils down to uh, what I would say is being observationally literate. And this is why I shared like the TikTok example. If you look at how are our youth learners, how are they utilizing the technologies that they do have access to? What are the characteristics and their habits? And how can we utilize those very same things within the context of our learning environment? So I'll give you an example. Back, back when I taught early in my career, you had, what is the platform? It preceded Musical.ly. Why am I drawing a blank? Napster. No, uh, not that far back. <laughs> I'm old, but, I'm not, but not that far back. Pandora? Uh, it preceded Musical.ly. Is it Pandora? I'm not sure. No, but but that, even, even Musical.ly for that matter. Because remember, Musical.ly ended up shifting into what is now TikTok. Okay. And I would and I would I would just watch and I would I would talk to my students and you know and I play music in class and I, I I take pride in the fact that most of my former students love 80s music and they love classic rock because that's what I grew up. I played the guitar, so I learned on classic rock and I I my formative years were in the 80s. But even use that example, it's like, okay, so you like music, you like producing content. You like being able to customize it to some degree. You like to be able to interact with existing content. In some cases, you like to remix existing content. I have an idea. And that would be the catalyst for some of the things the students would do. And I think there is, I think for, for all of us as educators and really as human beings, there's value in using something that already exists as a catalyst for your inspiration, your creativity to create something new. And I think that educators get this, they build this wall around copyright, copyright, copyright. Listen, I'm all for recognizing the source of what you use. But even in a recent talk I shared with the group, I was like, how many of you like uh, like Nirvana? You know, because uh, was it smells like teen spirit? It's a 20 year anniversary. I'm like, I love Nirvana. I love Foo Fighters. I said, there was an interview with Dave Grohl recently, 
And I said, and it blew my mind. I'm like, I'm a huge Dave Grohl fan. And I think I, I said, he is the type of artist that we could all draw a degree of inspiration from. And I said, but he brought up something in this interview that resonated with me to the point where I bring it up now. If you listen to, I'm sorry, not Smells Like Teen, Nevermind is his 20 year anniversary. So the album, but the song Smells Like Teen Spirit. I said, if you listen to the drum track in that, he said in this interview what the inspiration for that drum track was. And they were like, well, what was it? And I said, you all sitting down? And they were like, of course they were. I'm like, you dropped a bomb on me by the Gap Band. And I said, listen to this and then listen to that. And I go and watch what happens. And I said, now, does that diminish his, his caliber uh, and his capabilities as an artist? Not at all. And I go, and even a recent song that, that with one of my gym classes, they play uh, Break My Heart by Dua Lipa. And so I was just like, you know, I like Dua Lipa. I like the collab that she did with Calvin Harris and stuff like that, because I love EDM music. And so for some reason, I just, I don't know, I Googled the song. And I looked at the song credits and I'm like, Michael Hutchinson, I forgot the other guy's name. First name is Ferris. These guys have started in excess, by the way. And they're in the song credits. And I'm like, why are they in the song credits? And then I listen to the song again. I'm like, oh, I see what you did there. The, um, the, the, there's a rhythm in her song, Break My Heart, that goes dun, 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 dun. That's from In Excess of, um, um, what's the song? I'm enjoying a plane. Um, give me a second. Okay, wait, yeah, wait. give me a second. It is, it is. Wait for it, wait for it. It is. Um, it's uh, Need You Tonight. Need You Tonight, thank you. Huzzah. Need You Tonight, yeah. There you go. Yeah, it's the guitar riff. It's Need You Tonight. Yeah. So, uh, and I just pulled it up. They gave them song credits because the riff is very similar. Not exact, but similar enough. Now, does that take away from NXS or Dua Lipa? No. Last example, um, and I love them, uh, The Verve, uh, Bittersweet Symphony. You know, they got sued by the Rolling Stones for this one little teeny part. But you know what the Rolling Stones? They were like, just give us song credit. We're not trying to take the money. So my whole point in answering your question, Stephen, is looking at all of these resources and drawing inspiration from any source possible. And it is absolutely, totally fine to say, you know what? I was inspired to do this within a context of my lesson, my pedagogical approach, or my learning environment from this one, this one, this one, and this one. It doesn't diminish you as an individual. And in fact, I wanna redirect that whole narrative I would argue it actually shows how much more you are of a lifelong learner because you're seeking inspiration as a catalyst for being a different version of yourself from as many other sources as possible. And it also shows the students that you don't, you don't have all the answers. You don't need to have all the answers. <laughs> I used to always tell my students that you think I have all the answers. That's what Google yeah. is for. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. All right. Uh, well, Ken, this has been a great conversation. We really yeah, you. appreciate you taking the time to join us. If folks want to follow along to uh, or with what you're doing, where where can they keep up with you? So I do use the socials, although I've given myself a intentional digital timeout from Instagram for a month, although it's now turned into six weeks. 
In fact, it's funny. It was in something I watched. There's only two industries that refer to their primary client base as users. Let that sink in for a moment. So I gave my, so anyway, I use the socials quite heavily, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, my website is kennethshelton.net. Uh, I am working on my book. My goal is to have the manuscript uh, in final edited form, ready for publication by the end of this calendar year. I'm trying to hold myself to that firm deadline. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's where I am. Again, I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on all of them, but, and I use them all differently. I would just say, if folks want to get connected, whichever platform you use, I probably have an account on there. Connect with me on that one, especially if that's the one that is more, you're more familiar with and you use on a regular basis. And uh, hopefully, you know, what I write, what I share, what I publish, and uh, ideally, if we get, we get past COVID, fingers crossed, um, I will be able to cross paths in person with as many of your audience uh, as possible because I, I thrive on the in-person um, exchanges. And even back to what we were sharing, it's like one of my favorite things to do is after I give a keynote, if some educators are like, we want to talk to you more, I'm like, let's, let's go have coffee or tea together this afternoon or for lunch or something like that. Nothing more, nothing more valuable for me than breaking bread with educators to find out their stories and and to keep me well grounded and well informed on the things that I I, I have uh, passions around and the things that I talk about. Yeah, yeah, that's excellent, excellent. Well, oh, that includes the two of you. Eventually, we'll cross paths in person. I, I, hope. I yeah. hope so. I hope so. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, well there's there's going to have to be a part two, so maybe the part two can be in person, right? That'd, That'd be, be even great. better. We'll yeah. do live. That's yeah. right. Yeah, we could. Yeah, yep. Live with Dave. I love it. Uh, well, very good. Well, Ken, thank you. This is so thank great. You. Thanks for thanks for joining us. I, I appreciate I you both. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah, this has been a real treat. A real treat.